Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Can I say a huge thank you to uh, Paul Williams for inviting me to be here. A huge thank you to Pete for his welcome and apologies to Ben Cooper, who's one of his sermon slots I've stolen. Let me say I thank I love coming to Christchurch uh, Fullwood. I've got two goddaughters who come to Christchurch Fullwood. Uh, I've, my uh, eldest son's girlfriend comes to Christchurch Fullwood. So I've got lots to be thankful to for Christchurch uh, Fullwood. Do have Exodus chapter 5 open in front of you. We're on page 61 of the Church Bibles. And many people were thinking, things can't get any worse. They can only get better. You see, after Wales beat England... Things can't get any worse, they can only get better. And then they did get worse. And they didn't get better. Things can't get worse, they must must get better. I reckon that's what Moses must have thought as he entered the king's palace in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1. Things can't get any worse. Things must get better. Things can't get any worse. The situation for this vast group of Israelites living as immigrants in Egypt is that the king, fearing this group of foreigners, has taken harsh and brutal measures against them. He tried a policy of ethnic cleansing, but it didn't work. And so in place is now a policy of enforced slave labour. And for the last 40 years, Pharaoh has been building vast cities on the cheap, using a labour force he has pressed into work. Things can't get any worse, can they? Things must surely get better, because last time you read of the Lord calling Moses to be the rescuer. Moses would lead the people out of slavery. We've read how the Lord provided at every point that Moses felt insecure. And at the end of chapter 4, the people have met Moses again. He has returned to Egypt. The miracles that God gave Moses and Aaron are performed as signs and they believed. Things can't get any worse. They can only get better. Maybe you've had situations where that is what you thought. Things can't get any worse. Things can only get better. Well, if Moses and Aaron thought that, and if the Israelites thought that in Egypt, then they're in for a shock. Because things do get worse, and initially things do not get better. As we notice the first of two headings for you this morning, the first is this, the Lord's rescuer rejected. The Lord's rescuer rejected. Look with me at chapter 5. Moses and Aaron have entered the palace. Moses was brought up at court. Perhaps that's how he managed to get an interview with the king. Moses and Aaron have entered into the king's presence and now they speak. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Notice Moses and Aaron tell the king who has sent them what he says and why he says it. But it fails to impress. And so we first see the Lord's rescuer being rejected by the pagan king. Notice how the king replies in verse 2. Perhaps you can hear the sneer in the tone of voice. I think Stephen almost got it as he was reading it to us. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Pharaoh's got his own gods. The scholars say that there were 500 gods, at least in Egypt. So why should he bother with a Hebrew god? 
man, he can't be much of a God anyway. Just look at the situation of his people. So why should Pharaoh listen to him? The king answers very clearly. It's no with a capital no. Moses and Aaron try a second time in verse 3. They appear to even recast their request in gentler terms, though they add a veiled threat. The king's answer to the first request was no. The second time he doesn't answer the request at all. Instead, he rebukes them in verses 4 and 5. The king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. Working for me. Moses and Aaron, you're disturbers of the peace at best and plotters of sedition at worst. The rescuer, Moses, is rejected. But of course what's really happening, isn't it, is that Pharaoh is rejecting the Lord God. He's saying no to the Lord. And now the issue in the book of Exodus is this. It's being teed up for you for the next few weeks. Who is bigger? Is it the Lord of the Hebrews or is it the King of Egypt? If verses 1 to 5 are a bit like those pre-boxing contest press conferences where the two managers are kind of flexing their muscles and making their claims. You know, one is in a red corner and one in the blue corner. And it's as if you've got Pharaoh in one corner, you've got the Lord in the other. And at this point in the book of Exodus, if you've not read the book before, you might be wondering, who will win? The narrative is teeing up for this contest between the king of Egypt and the god of the Hebrews. But Pharaoh rejects the Lord because he doesn't know the Lord he's dealing with. And he's certainly going to find that out as the weeks go by. Because knowing who you're dealing with does make a difference to how you treat them. I remembered when I joined the staff of a church in London many years ago. It was the first Sunday, and I just went and sat in a pew. I was sat next to a grey-haired man who was sitting alone. And I said... I don't know your name. He said, my name's James. I said, what do you do, James? He said, I'm a lawyer. I said, who do you work for, James? He says, I'm a lawyer for the government. I thought nothing more of, more of it until afterwards I discovered that James, the lawyer who worked for the government, was Lord Mackay, the Lord Chancellor. <laughs> Knowing who you're dealing with makes a difference to how you relate. Pharaoh does not know the Lord, but he will find out. But this rejection is more than just saying no to Moses. This rejection is more, in fact, than saying no to the Lord God. Because this rejection works itself out in then the persecution of the Lord's people. So often that's how it is through the pages of the Bible. People reject God and his rescuer by rejecting his people. And so you see, instead of things getting better for the Israelites... They're now going to get a whole load worse. That's really the theme of verses 6 through to 18. Life in Egypt is suddenly going to get a whole load worse. The slave drivers and the foremen are to instruct the slaves. No longer do they make the bricks with which to build the cities in Egypt. Now they have to collect the straw to make the bricks to build the cities in Egypt. The workload has just dramatically increased. And notice in verse 8, there is to be no let up in the amount of bricks they make. Productivity is not to fall. In verses 10 to 14, the foremen pass on the news. Slavery has just got a whole load worse. Indeed, verse 12, we're told that the people will now have to scatter over the whole of Egypt in order to supply the straw to make the bricks to build the cities. 
Well, the reaction of the Israelite foreman is to send a deputation to the king. The shop steward's directly going to the employer. But there are no industrial tribunals to take Pharaoh to, no European work directives to argue from, and no courts of human rights to appeal. Oh, they make their case in verses 15 and 16, but their appeal falls on deaf ears, and the king just merely restates what he's already said before in verse 17, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, get to work. You'll not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The rescuer Moses has been rejected by the pagan king. But the rejection doesn't stop there. For now, there's not just the rejection by the pagan king. Moses is now going to be rejected by his own people. Because you can imagine, what did the ordinary man in the street think of Moses? He's come back at the end of chapter 4 and said, rescue is about to come. Whereas at this point, it seems that Moses is a complete washout. A total failure. And the people want to ditch him. After his trip to the king, rescue looks even less likely before, doesn't it? As slavery's just got a whole load worse. The foreman knew that they would be in trouble when they told the Israelites that the king was implacable. So when the Israelite foreman realised, verse 19, they were in trouble, when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day, they leave Pharaoh and they find Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, verse 21, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses and Aaron are given a piece of their mind. And even after Moses reassures them towards the end of our passage, notice in chapter 6 verse 9, when Moses reassures them, they still would not listen to Moses because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. The rejection of Moses by his own people. And it's not the first time that it's happened in the book of Exodus. They rejected Moses in chapter 2, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? What the text of Exodus is doing is placing the Israelites on the same canvas as Pharaoh. They react to the rescuer God in the same way. Which raises the question, why does Moses the writer want us to know this? Isn't it a bit embarrassing to tell us of the rejection of the Israelites? You could have left that bit out of the story. You could have airbrushed it out of the account. Or do you think he's included it so that we see that God's rescue of Israel is not because they deserve it? It's not because they're better than Egypt. That little phrase that's used in verse 9, they did not listen to Moses, is exactly the phrase that will be used to Pharaoh when you journey through the plagues. Would not listen. Has this been included so that we see that the rescue of the Israelites is all about God's grace and mercy? That's certainly how Moses understands it when at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy he reflects on it in Deuteronomy 7. And it becomes a major Bible theme, doesn't it? Our rescue 
is not because we're better than others. It's not because we deserve it more. No, the New Testament will say, by grace you've been saved through faith. Not because of deeds done by us in righteousness. And that leads to application. You see, none of us can be smugly proud thinking that we're better than our non-Christian family and friends because we've done nothing to deserve it. It takes away that twin tendency that can be in local churches where people feel superior to other Christians or inferior to other Christians. But if you understand that rescue is all of grace and mercy, that attitude of pride is anathema, must go. The one God has chosen to be the rescuer is rejected by a pagan king and rejected by his own people. Does that ring any bells in your mind? You see, what happens to Moses here is a shadow of what happens to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was rejected by the pagan king and his own people. Moses' experience here in Exodus 5 is but a shadow of what Pilate and the Jews will do to God's rescuing son, Jesus. The rejection of Moses is repeated in the rejection of Jesus at his death. And then Stephen, just before he's martyred, will take the rejection of Moses, see it as a shadow of the rejection of Jesus, and then see that the norm of people's rejection of the gospel. In other words, people will continue to reject the Lord by rejecting his rescuer, by rejecting the gospel. We prayed for people around the world today whose gospel proclamation is rejected in ways as violent and brutal as Pharaoh does here. But we see it, don't we? When our gospel invitations are rejected. Have you ever invited someone to a guest event at church and been rejected? The door's been closed, the answer's no. Rejecting the gospel... Don't be surprised when the non-Christian world does it. Rejection from a pagan king. But perhaps the shock is also rejection from those who are included as Israelites. And we see that from those who appear to be God's people sometimes today. You see, when experience shouts, as it did here, when experience shouts, the Lord does not appear to be doing what he's promised you will discover that some people give up, drift away, let go. It would be a surprise if many of us in this room did not know of people who've turned away from rescuer Jesus because he has not delivered what they thought he ought to have delivered by now. Because waiting can be hard and the wait can make us think the promises won't be kept which is exactly where we go next. The, re- the rescuer rejected, but then that leads to the Lord's promises restated. The rejection of Moses and Aaron, the worsening situation for the Israelites, leads Moses, verse 22, to pray. He t- returns to the Lord. He's got questions to ask and a report to make. He tells God what's going on, as if God didn't know. And his big question is why? 
Oh Lord, why have you brought troubles upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Moses has been told, chapter 3, you are the one who will lead the rescue. So why has everything gone pear-shaped? Maybe you can understand Moses' question and his puzzlement and his frustration. And he still hasn't quite got it, even by the end of our section in verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? But the Lord restates. And in verses 1 to 5, he restates a covenant. So you can see that the Lord says, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out. God will cause the slavery to end. They will leave Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh will push them out of Egypt. God will, verses 2 to 5, keep his covenant. Twice the word comes in verse 4 and then again in verse 5. The Lord had made a binding promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. But do you notice in verses 2 to 5, God had not revealed his name to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He'd made the promise without revealing his name, which he has just done to Moses back in chapter 3. Yahweh, I am who I am. And it seems in verse 6, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, that it is God's name that will become the guarantee that he truly will keep the covenant promises that he has made. I am the Lord. Sometimes a name carries weight, doesn't it? Years ago, I worked in Knightsbridge in London, Harrods in Knightsbridge of London. I worked in the furniture department. I was a very junior, uh, and I worked alongside an older salesman. And we'd just taken an extraordinary order for an expensive four-piece suite. And I mean expensive. It cost £3,000, and that's 35 years ago. The man buying this four-piece suite was very insistent are you sure it'll be delivered for Christmas, he said. Do you promise it'll be delivered for Christmas, he said. What guarantee can you give me that it will be delivered for Christmas? My older colleague just looked him in the eye and said, Sir, this is Harrods of Knightsbridge. <laughs> the name was the guarantee. And God's name is the guarantee that he will keep the covenant promises that he has made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob which we'll see centre on the land. But for us to see the centering on the, of the land, we'll notice four things in verses 6 to 8 that are being promised. First, being promised to get the land, there will be redemption from Egyptian slavery. So I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Three verbs are used there, all speaking of release, liberation. I will bring you out. The yoke that has bound Israel to Egypt will be taken away. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you. They're the verbs that point to Egyptian tyranny ending. Redemption from slavery, but more. Redemption from slavery will lead to them becoming God's possession, being adopted as his people. So verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. 
In other words, redemption is not just physical, it's relational too. They move from being in slavery to the Egyptians to being, to the, being the possession of the Lord God. They change from being the people of Pharaoh to being the people of Yahweh. You see, Israel was always going to be owned by someone. What will happen is that they are going to move from the awful torture of being owned by this pagan king to the wonderful blessings of being owned by God. See, we humans are never free. The New Testament says we're either children of the evil one or children of God. We're either slaves to sin or slaves to God with the marvellous paradoxical irony that when you're slaves to God, you truly are free. Thirdly, this redemption, which will bring Israel to be God's possession, will also enable them to know what God is like. It will bring the revelation of God's character. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. This rescue will actually be the means by which they will know what Yahweh, Lord, I am who I am, is like. They've been told the name back in chapter 3. But as you journey through the book of Exodus, you'll see what that name means. And seeing what that name means, you'll discover who God is. In olden days, someone's name signified what they were like or what they did. I saw Philip Packing coming into church this morning. Philip. His name means lover of horses. Now, I don't know whether he is or not, but that's the meaning of the name. But in an ancient era, if you were Mr. Butcher, you chopped meat. If you were Mr. Baker, you made bread. If you were Mr. Cooper, you made barrels. What does Lord mean? Well, once you've got to Mount Sinai and you can look back, when the name of God is explained, you'll see, of course, that's what he's like. We've seen what he's been doing. And then verse 8, there will be the possession of the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand and to give to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as your own possession, not leased, not rented, not let. It will be their own possession. What God had promised to Abraham four centuries earlier, he will give to his people. Redemption from slavery. Adoption as his people, revealing who he is and giving them the land he's promised. Those are the things that the Lord has promised to Moses. Now the Israelites aren't convinced yet, verse 9, and Moses isn't convinced yet, verse 12. But it will happen. And read on and of course it does happen. But these promises here in Exodus chapter 6, These assurances are all shadow. Indeed, the New Testament says it all happens for our sake. Because the fulfilling of these promises is a shadow of the real fulfillment, the final fulfillment of the promises that God makes to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which are fulfilled in the comings of Jesus. It's so that we will understand even more clearly the great escape That is in Jesus Christ. Because redemption is ours. 
Not from a cruel king, but actually from something much worse. Do you believe that? We are redeemed by Jesus from slavery to sin. We have been freed from it. Redemption. We have it, but we don't. Because you and I still sin. And so we're still looking forward, aren't we, to the redemption of our bodies. Second, we have been brought to be God's possession. He does own us. We have that very special place of being his people. But Paul can at the same time say we have it, but we don't. Because Paul says in Romans, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Third, this reveals what God is like, who God is. And at the death of Jesus, we see supremely, don't we, what God is like. We have it, but we don't. Because we're waiting for the day when one day we will see him, see his face. And the land that God will give, we have it. We've been seated in the heavenly realms. You have come to Mount Zion, a land we have it. But we don't. We wait for a new creation. We wait As we were thinking with the fourth commandment, Sabbath is but a shadow of a perfect rest where it will be only good all the time. The rescuer rejected. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, don't continue to reject the rescuer Jesus. Instead, turn around to him. Perhaps come to Christianity Explored. And if you're a Christian here this morning, don't reject the rescuer Jesus. Rather rejoice in what we already have and look forward to what certainly will come. The rescuer rejected and the promises restated. Let's bow our heads and pray before we sing. Our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that none of us might be found as those who have rejected rescue in King Jesus. We praise you that you make promises, some of which we enjoy today, but which we wait for their final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ. Keep us waiting patiently and guard us against rejecting Jesus. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.